Please turn with me now to our New Testament reading, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath lose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you have sent us Jesus Christ, in order that we might know the truth, in order that we might know the one true and living God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exegete. He is the one who explains the one true God of whom we have never seen. So, Lord, how we pray that we would listen to him this day and that you'd open our eyes and our ears and we would understand what you would speak to us with regard to this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we now come, after quite a while, really, in chapter 3, we come to chapter, or chapter uh, 12, we now come to chapter 13. Now the context is largely the same. Uh, the time, I think, is actually the very same. We have, they were present at that season, which might give you the idea that maybe within the, the few months or so, but it's probably better translated, there were some present at that very time. And so there is no difference in time. Jesus has been teaching, and now these people, these men are speaking. And even apart from that indication, if we didn't know that, 
the content is perfectly connected with what went before. So that this is, is almost part two of the last sermon that I preached. This is, in essence, part two. And the situation is this. After Jesus' last preaching session, some people had given him something, uh, given news of something terrible that had happened in Jerusalem. It's very much like the sort of sensational news that we get on, the, on our media these days. You know that if it bleeds, it leads. And so they have these, if there's any kind of tragedy, if there's any kind of mass murder that goes on, you can be absolutely certain you'll be hearing it on the news. Well, here it was. These people were doing the same and had given them this news of something terrible that had happened in Jerusalem. Apparently some men from Galilee, they were Galileans, which is in the north of the country, so some to like us, uh, who had gone down to Jerusalem. So imagine us going down to London. That's the situation there. And for that reason, they were no longer in uh, Herod's jurisdiction, but they were in Pilate's jurisdiction in the south of the country, in Judea and Jerusalem. And Pilate had taken the opportunity to kill them. We don't know why. We do know that Pilate was an unstable and violent man who was more than capable of doing these kind of things, but he had taken this opportunity of them being there to put them to death. The question is, we, uh, we could speculate all day as to exactly what Pilate's motivations were, but the question is, why was this no- news told to Jesus? What was their motivations? What, were they, what was the point they were trying to make as they brought this news to Jesus? Well, we do know this much. They thought that the men who had died, the ones who had been put to death by Pilate in the temple, were singled out for that sudden destruction because they were particularly bad sinners. We know that because Jesus responds in verse 2. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And of course, Jesus does not say such things idly. They did suppose that they were worse sinners because they suffered such things. So, given what Jesus has just been teaching on in the last part of chapter 12... They could have well been using this, they thought, as an illustration to bolster what they thought was Jesus' point in the last part of chapter 12. Do you remember what they might have thought? It was the same thing that Peter thought. Other people need to repent before it's too late for them. And this is, Jesus, what you're talking about? We've, we, just, we have an illustration of that, actually. Some people, some terrible sinners from Galilee, were, were just put to death in, in the temple. So you're right about that. Well, that was Peter's mistake as well. He says, are you really, you, you're, you're not applying this to me. You mean to other people, this, this message you have that you ought to repent. You mean other people, that you ought to get right with God. Because Peter just couldn't believe that any part of those very strong warnings had anything to do with him. But the entire force of everything that Jesus has to say is precisely that. You must repent. Not your neighbor, not your friend, not the person you hear about on the TV that's done these horrible things. You, you must repent. And you should do it now. That's what this message is about. It's the title, Unless You Repent. Well, with this title, Unless You Repent, there are four points. Simply, Galileans, second, dwellers in Jerusalem, Thirdly, the fig tree. And fourthly, Christ. Galileans, dwellers in Jerusalem, the fig tree, and Christ. 
So let's consider then these Galileans, and starting in verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I've mentioned the situation as best we know it, but again, notice a little bit in more detail the circumstances. What precisely were these Galileans doing when they died? What were they doing? They were not in the act of some particular sin. They were not even in the act of their normal, ordinary business of life. They were in the act of religious worship. There in the temple of the living God in Jerusalem, there to offer sacrifices. And you can see how someone just might think that they must have been particularly evil, that God would bring upon them such an end at such a time. Jesus, though, he answered, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. No. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Because Jesus knows that our human tendency is always going to be to find the exception clause. He knows that our, our tendency is always going to be to put, to lay these things, the burdens that come to us, on someone else. The, the imperatives in preaching, they must, uh, you know, the old, the old um, saying is that um, people come to a preacher afterwards and they say, what a powerful, powerful sermon, if only X, you know, would have been there, when in fact the person who's saying this to him is the very one that the preacher had in mind that needed to hear these things. That's our problem, isn't it? That we think that the word applies to someone else. And Jesus makes it very clear. It's not some special Galileans. It's the Galileans that are there in front of him. Not those ones that were imaginary in in some horrible sin that they deserve such an end. Actually, they were all in the very same situation of them. Almost ready for sudden destruction because they well deserved it. Unless they repent. Unless they repent. And see, here's the thing. In all of this, please, you must understand that he's not a preacher of doom and gloom to no reason, for no purpose. He wants, he, out of compassion, out of grace, Jesus Christ wants you to repent. That's his heart towards you. He does not want to, again, if he were, if he were hard-hearted, he would come with a gospel and he'd put it right here. And he just walk on and, and look at everyone and see that they need to repent and not say a word. And when sudden destruction came, well, then he would be glad for it. But no, I want us to see that Jesus took every opportunity to tell people, to give them the warnings because he cared, because he wanted them to repent. He says the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He would much prefer to see people to repent. We know there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so Jesus gives him this chance. Now, I would say, by the way, Matthew Henry, one of the points, many good points that he makes is that, note, it will be good use to us both to explain the word of God and to enforce it upon ourselves by observing the providences of God. And so what, I'm, what I want, as I just give you a little in passing application at this point, 
I would just say, if you ever do come across some particularly poignant or powerful type of situation you hear of in the news, the last thing you want to do is to make it an application for others. Okay, that would be to no purpose. That would be counter to Jesus' own example. Jesus says, if you hear about something like that, you need to put yourself right there in their place, their situation, and say, this is what I deserve. This is a warning for me. This is something that I need to take on board, not other people. Well, we'll speak a little bit more, perhaps, in the application. But that was, those were the Galileans, okay? So what about, the, what about they're in another part of the country, right? Jerusalem. Well, that's our second point, the dwellers in Jerusalem. This also applies to them. And Jesus brings up then in verse 4, Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? So having heard and refuted this particular example, Jesus then brings up an example of his own, something that had happened maybe a little while uh, ago, but also in recent history, um, a slightly different kind of example. Because A, these were not Galileans, but these, these were those who dwelt in Jerusalem. All right, so before we had Galileans who were down in Jerusalem, now we have actual people who dwelt in Jerusalem. B, this was not murder, right? Because the other thing had everything to do with, with Pilate's sin in unrighteously putting these people to death in the temple. But this was not murder. This was something bad happening. This is a tower that collapsed. Something that the insurance industry, do you know what the insurance industry calls, calls this? An act of God. This is the kind of thing that, just, that, that happens in the providence of God. And we ought to meditate upon that, don't we? Because there's nothing that ever happens, nothing at all that happens that is not down to the providence, down to the ordering of all things of God. God is in charge of things because he is God. And if a tower fell on 18 people, it's because God had ordained that. Isn't it true? It's true. Well, there might be, so there are some differences, but there might be something in common. Now, that is, think about the Tower of Siloam. Where have we heard that word before, that name, Siloam? Well, it's a place, and it was in John 9, 7, a long time ago. And he said to him, this is Jesus, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So this was this pool, this religiously significant pool where people came to be washed. Some of them to be healed, some of them just to be ceremonially washed before carrying on in some other religious duties in Jerusalem. So it is at least possible, possible, um, I'm not saying that we know this to be the case, but it's possible that these people were there in order to wash in the pool. And if that's the case, again, we don't really know, then one illustration is about trying to get right with God from atonement from the blood of animals, and the other one is about being washed in water, and in both cases, in that they were actually not in the act of sin, but perhaps in the act of trying to get right with God. Okay? Now, if that's the case, we know it's the case in one. We can be certain about the ones in Jerusalem and in the temple means they were at that moment trying to get right with God. And that's when they died, before they finished. Do you understand the import of that? It's an illustration of everything that Jesus was previously trying to tell us. Don't leave these things off. 
Do not think that you have time to deal with God in the future. Because there will be, and there have been in history, those who were actually in the act of trying to get right with God when they died suddenly. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. And mainly, mainly, we have the very same point from Jesus himself. We don't have to speculate about this at all. Verse 5, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These weren't worse sinners. You, your tendency is to imagine that it says sudden destruction, and that's the issue again. It's not just destruction, but sudden destruction. It's not just death. It is unexpected and quick, sudden death. No one of the families, the Galilean families of those men who came down to Jerusalem were expecting not to see them again. They just came down to offer sacrifices, and they were expecting them back. And what about those, those, those people in Siloam? Well, they were, they were there. We don't know, perhaps even to wash in that, in that pool. But they didn't expect to die that day. Jesus says, this is your situation. All of you who hear the voice of God, this is your situation. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, they weren't worse sinners. No, everyone is in that situation, actually. It applies for those who are in Galilee. It applies to those who are in Jerusalem. And thirdly, then he illustrates this with the parable of the fig tree. So thirdly, the parable of the fig tree. Verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. What do we say? What do we, what do we say about this owner? Is he being unreasonable here? Not at all. He's been, he's been eminently reasonable as a, a good owner of this land and evaluating this situation very straightforwardly in the clear light of day, this is very reasonable. This fig tree had had its chance. It was using up the ground and now it's time to move on to something else. If you have a garden, you've probably experienced a very similar thing. We certainly have done that. We have given certain plants and shrubs every chance and then eventually you say, it's time to move on. We have tried and we've got to we're going to have to take this one away, throw it away, and, and put in something else here. And what do we say then about the keeper who interceded on behalf of that fig tree? He's very patient, isn't he? He's very generous and warm-hearted towards this poor fig tree. This fig tree that hadn't done anything at all for those who had planted it, those who owned it, those who took care of it. Not, nothing at all. It didn't deserve to be there, but he had compassion on it. And the alternative title of this parable, you know, is, is actually the parable of the magnanimous vineyard keeper. Because that's, that's a good word for it. It's not just a parable of the fig tree, because the fig tree, yes, that's, that's, that's the, the recipient of these things. But actually, one of the points that we should be getting is 
this vineyard keeper who is interceding on its behalf. But what can we say about the fig tree itself? Well, that fig tree was, as we say, on thin ice, skating on thin ice. It was living on borrowed time. What kind of situation, what, what, sort of, what sort of world did that fig tree live in? One in which its end was imminent if it did not change. It had one more chance, one more chance. And that the owner and the keeper were now fully agreed, one last chance for the fig tree before it was destroyed. Now, this is a parable. It's merely a parable. And it's, what is a parable? It's an illustration of spiritual principles applicable to what Jesus was trying to tell them. He's telling them something. He's already said it in plain words. And now he's trying to reinforce and illustrate what he's saying with a parable. That's what it is. And so in interpreting a parable, you always begin by determining what it is that Jesus is trying to get across. What is his point? What is it? Well, just previously in Luke 12, 40, he says, Therefore, you be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Suddenly, judgment is coming. And then in Luke 12, 56, Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time, he said, it's coming. It's going to be sudden. You've got to be ready for it. And here's point in verse 3, repeated in the very next verse. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In this manner of sudden, unexpected destruction, this is what is coming upon you. Unless you change. So now you have this illustration. It's illustrating the very same sort of things. And it's saying that this was their situation before God. They're the fig tree. This fruitless fig tree known as Israel. They were that vineyard that Jesus often spoke of. Indeed, the prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 5.1. Do you remember that song? He, sang, he sung a song. Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press on it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it shall be burned, break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, shall not be pruned or dug. There shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That was them. This parable of the fig tree was about them. They were the ones, the plants that were living on borrowed time whose destruction was so very well deserved. Who was that man who owned the vineyard? Why, it's God the Father. And who is the keeper of the vineyard? Why, that's the Son of God, the mediator. Again, yes, we know this is a slightly different terminology than what we saw in John 15. 
But here in this illustration, it is a son of God who is the mediator, the one mediator between God and men who is interceding like Moses on behalf. Do you remember how God came and he said, I'm going to destroy these people, Moses. They're, such, they're so wicked. They're such sinners. They rebel against the word of God. They don't listen. And Moses says, no, please spare them. Give them another chance. He intercedes on their behalf. And God wanted him to do that. That was his job. That was a job that was given to Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, don't you ever stand up for them again? No, this is what he wants him to do. That's the job given to Moses as the mediator. Well, the job that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of the triune God was precisely to be the mediator. These two are not at odds. Rather, you have a, a, a reminder then of the justice of God. But then you have what is, what is, what is actually uh, overwhelming that. What is actually prevailing in the end is actually the mercy of God that is planned to be spared another year. Now that's the Son of God. He's interceding on behalf of his people. And that's a strange thing. Even these same people who said, I think actually he's, he's indwelt by Satan rather than the Holy Ghost. These people who are so take it or leave it and so blasé about the things that Jesus said to them. He was the one thing standing before their destruction right at that very moment. They were that fig tree. And they should have by all rights have been already destroyed. And even at that moment, destruction was looming over them. But he's the one saying, please give it another chance. Please. Let's just see if maybe now there'll be some fruit. Everyone in Israel is, is beyond fit for sudden destruction. They're past due for it. And the only reason they were having this conversation is because the, he himself is interceding on their behalf to give them one last chance. And they have no idea how close they are. No idea how close. Now again, we don't know all things, but it is more than likely, as we think of what else goes on in chapter 13, when he speaks of uh, the reality of how it is that the... Uh, Jerusalem is, is in dire danger. How often he says, I wish, I wish to have gathered you as a hen gathers its chicks, that destruction was in fact looming upon them. And that in AD 70, complete destruction, very much like that which happened to those people in Jerusalem, who indeed it came at the time of sacrifice, were killed. And Jesus is warning them particularly. But if we were to leave it there, we would be doing exactly what Jesus warns us not to do. If we were to say that it was only about those Jews, those Jews, they really deserved it because they had been given every opportunity by God. And so when they were destroyed in AD 70, a long time ago, then that surely was exactly what they deserved. And it has nothing to do with me. That would be 180 degrees contrary to the whole point that Jesus is saying. This is... For all of us. We'll return to that in a moment. But fourthly, our fourth point finally is, it, is, is Christ. What, do we, what is Christ in all these things? We've given some hints. The fact that those other Galileans died in the temple and even on the very altar itself. 
Think about that for a moment, that their, the blood, their, their own blood was mingled with their sacrifices. Their human blood taking the place of the blood of sheep and, sheep and goats and bulls, and it didn't do a single thing. It didn't even atone for one of their own sins, let alone the sins of anyone else. It did nothing. They bled and they died there in the temple, and their blood did nothing. And Pilate could have added to them all the men of Galilee and all the men of Jerusalem, every last one of them. He could have have hired the high priest to do it, and it wouldn't have made a single bit of difference. They'd all still be in their sins. They were sinners. And the fact that their blood was spilled, however sinful it was, the one who did that, however culpable before God he is, it was yet deserved that they die because the wages of sin is death. What you get, you sin against God, and, and, and the, the righteous response of that is death both now and eternally. But listen, Christ was also about to go up to Jerusalem. He was a Galilean, right? And he was also going to go down to Jerusalem, to the temple. And he was also going to go down to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, although not at the temple. And he was going to go down to where this murderous Pilate had jurisdiction over everyone who was there. And he was about to have his own blood shed at the time of sacrifices. Indeed, at the Passover. And it was by order of this murderous Pilate that Jesus, this righteous Galilean, was about to die. But this was going to be different. His blood was going to happen at the time of the sacrifices. This spotless lamb of God who had no sin, his blood, this time it was going to mean something. The shedding of blood at long last, after all those years had passed there in Jerusalem, the shedding of blood was going to really, really, really mean something. His innocent, spotless blood. It was of infinite value to wipe away the sins, not only of a few Galileans or a few people who dwelt in Jerusalem, but of all of God's people from Adam until the very end of time. It is an infinite fountain and never comes to an end. This is what Christ was there to do. This is the thing that he said he was going to do. His intercession, it wasn't just asking that the Father spare them another moment. But he was going to do something that was really going to make a difference. There was going to be fertilizer. There was going to be some digging and there's going to be some fertilizer. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that when the call to repent comes to you, it is not an empty call. But it comes with everything that Christ himself could possibly do to make it happen. It is an efficacious, wonderful call that comes. It's not an empty invitation. But there is forgiveness, complete forgiveness, that is available in the blood of Christ. That blood that was mingled, yes, even with the the blood of wicked sinners there, the murderers, the terrorists that were to his left and to his right. But those who repent and put their faith in Christ will absolutely be saved. The applications are pretty obvious and straightforward. And the first one is this. I just ask a question. Do you see how precious Christ is? Do you see it? I mean, we spoke about his precious blood, and we can never say enough about that. 
Hebrews 9.12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. It's not with these things that were, by the way, precious on their own. Who, who among us just goes and buys a, a whole goat or calf? That's a lot of money. So their blood has some value, but he didn't come with that. He came with his own blood. That's what he comes with when he comes to make intercession for us. It cost him his life. And his work as mediator, for his work of interceding for us, it, it carries on. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is always able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Look, you've got to understand about Christ and his intersection. He is so perfectly just. Some of us have a righteous indignation, a righteous anger when someone wrongs us, when someone sins against us. Even a child here knows that if someone sins against you, hits you, takes something that belongs to you, you feel the righteous indignation rising up. Is that right? Do you feel that if someone wrongs you? You feel like some, there should be some justice towards this person. Jesus is far more just than any of us. He's perfectly just. Think about being in that situation of your perfect righteousness and justice. And Jesus knows of the whole sins of the whole world. And yet he's the one who's saying, no, give them another chance. Don't bring deception to them all quite yet. I know that they deserve it. But let's hang on. He's interceding. And you know, that's for Christians as well. Do we, is there ever a point in our lives that we don't need the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, no, no. This is, this is for us too. This is our, uh, forever our situation. Think of how precious Christ is. And secondly, another very obvious one is that you ought to repent. This is part two of the very same sermon, isn't it? Know your situation was previously and, and now unless you repent. Because the, the word is that you will all likewise perish. And please do what they didn't do, which was to include yourself in the you and in, include yourself in the all. There's not an exception there. Jesus is well aware, the Holy Spirit is well aware of our trying to squirm out of such things. This is for all of us. Don't exclude yourself. Repent. Again, some for the first time, absolutely. There will always be in the house of God those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. And therefore the word of God is for you that you ought to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If it wasn't a serious matter, Jesus would not have said these things. He didn't say them for effect. He didn't say empty words. He said because he cared. He loved those whom he's speaking to. He loves you. And he is speaking in order that you might repent. And then for us, for us Christians, you know, one of the specific things of repentance is likewise that we could take acts of providence as something that applies to someone else. Perhaps there's someone who's um, in various ways a sinner that is known to us and something bad happens to them. And what is likely to be? Ah, well, they're suffering the judgment of God as rightly they should. Actually, what Jesus is saying for us as God's people is that the first and primary and perhaps only application that we make is that this should have happened to us. That we are every bit of deserving of 
of, of, of suffering, every bit of deserving of pain and, and all the rest of it as anyone who's ever lived. Unless, unless we want to say that we've not sinned against God. In which case we exempt ourselves from the gospel itself. Well, we should repent. Time is limited. The whole point is that the end could come at any time. And there, are, there, there were those who were in the very act of getting right with God who died before they had a chance to finish. Now is the time. Repent. Secondly, or rather, sorry, thirdly now, so this is our third application, judge not. Judge not. And let me reiterate what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be discerning. Of course, we should look at people, and in our own minds, we should think about what they're doing and say, is this in accordance with the word of God? Things in particular, as I spoke to the young people in the media, we should deconstruct the media. So definitely not, we should reduce how much we're on it, but we should absolutely deconstruct it and make sure that we're discerning about everything that we take in. And we should certainly not wink at sin. God calls us to bear testimony against sin. So I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is what Jesus said, which is judge not. Again, our natural human tendency will always be to think of the flaws of others. And what we should be doing is as Jesus did and say, well, it's actually not that they were worse sinners than anyone else. We are in this situation as well. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove this speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So do you see the point in this? The point in this is that we should be absolutely minutely uh, critical of ourselves. That we turn to repentance, that we see our own flaws, because the problem is, it's always opposite. Everything is biased against us seeing any flaw in ourselves, and biased towards seeing every minute flaw in everyone else. And you have to know that. You just have to operate that. So when you're just walking along in your daily life, and you notice that someone's inconsistent, you notice that someone's failing in one way or another, you say, aha, I am super sensitive to that. And more than likely, I am insensitive to the very same thing in myself. And so before you do another thing, you think to yourself, in what ways have I now or ever been disobedient, inconsistent, hypocritical on this particular thing? And get right with God. Use that providence as an opportunity to get right with God yourself. Now, if the day then comes that you're completely clear of that sin, and we hope that it will be soon, Now you're in such a much, much better position then, in mercy and in grace, to bring that matter before your brother. Because, of course, if you love him, you eventually will do that. But it will only be after you yourself have gone over with a fine-tooth comb these very same issues. Judge not. Fourthly and finally, bear fruit. Because this is what God was looking for, right? This is what the parable of the fig tree points to. Fruit. Now, there are all kinds of different elements of fruit in the Christian life. I don't have time to mention them all, but let me just consider what we know for certain applies to all of God's people, which are the fruit of the Spirit. 
in Galatians 5, for instance. Galatians 5.19. Now, it begins uh, uh, with the fruit of the flesh, right? The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but, so that's, if the, the flesh has sway over someone, that is what you're going to find, those very things. What about the spirit, though? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruit in the plural, by the way, multiple fruits here and there and everywhere. It is one wonderful composite fruit of the one Spirit. If that Spirit is in you, then this fruit will be present. And what I want to say is that this is what God so desires to see in us. He's coming looking for fruit. He was doing so with the vineyard. He's doing so with the, with the fig tree. He wants to see this beautiful fruit in us. He loves it. This is the thing that he wants from his people. And that's what we should do. This is what the Father's looking for. This is what the Son died for, by the way. Where's that fertilizer coming from? Why, from his own veins, isn't it? How, what's that, that digging? It's a, maybe it's a spear. In his side, I don't know. But the point is that these things are indicative. All that he could possibly done was done at his expense. He is saving those who are utterly ripe for destruction at his own expense. And he died in order not just that we'd be saved, but that there be fruit. Do you see? Not just that we'd be saved. But the purpose of this is that we'd be brought to glorious fruit. That's what he wants. That's what he died for. That's what the Spirit lives in us to bring forth. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Bring forth good fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who can be sufficient for such things? We recognize, Lord, in our our frailty that so much of this is already washed over us. But Lord, we pray that we would not let go of the main thing, the main thing that Jesus was pointing to us, that we do not point to others and say, this is a lesson for them. But we, we say, rather, this is a lesson for us. And all this is pointing to the universal human situation, that we do not know how much longer we have. And destruction could come at any time. Indeed, it would be just. Indeed, Lord, it would... It would be utterly righteous because we are all sinners. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd use whatever time that you give to us remaining in this world to repent, not to wait to the future, not to put it off, knowing that there have been many who have died even in the very process of trying to get right with God. But, Heavenly Father, we pray that we'd repent now. And Lord, we pray moreover that we would bring forth the fruit that Jesus was, the Father's been looking for, that Jesus died for, and that the Spirit lives in us in order that we might have and display. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.